Great, thank you Lucy, thank you David. My name's Craig, I'm a minister in training here at the church. Let me add my welcome onto the one we've already received today. As you heard earlier, we're carrying on our series this morning, looking at the book of Kings. We started it last Sunday night, and basically the rule is, if you're not David or Sinclair preaching, you're going to be preaching Kings, so hence why we're looking at it this morning. But what is the book of Kings all about? A bit of recap for us, perhaps, on new information. Well, the book of Kings, one and two kings together, it's all about the rise of the monarchy, the monarchy of ancient Israel, starting with the golden age we've seen from David going to Solomon, and then the decline, the splitting of the kingdom into north and south, and the northern kingdom being conquered by the Assyrian army, the southern kingdom being conquered by the Babylonian army. Kings is a history book. But it's more than that. Kings is also a sermon from history. A sermon not just for the Jews, but for all of God's people throughout all of God's time. And just to remind us, here are three things we're going to learn as we look at the book of Kings. First off, we're going to see... This is not working. Try and click it on there. We're going to see the sort of king we need. We need a king who's in charge of us. Perhaps you're here and you're onto Christian and you, you rile against the idea. Someone ruling over us. But that's because often we think of this person as perhaps being a tyrant. Somebody who's untrustworthy. Somebody who perhaps is incompetent. The other option, every person doing what they think is right. That, that's anarchy. That's a horror film. See, all of us need a king. And all of us have a king. His name is King Jesus. As we go through the book, we're going to learn more about him. Second, second leave, put the slide on. We'll also see what it looks like to live in his kingdom. We'll see that in part now in the church, but especially when he returns. And thirdly, one king teaches us the importance of sticking with God's words in difficult times. As you read this book, we'll see the kings that they, they fail to stick with God's word. Some of them bottled it under pressure of surrounding nations. They gave small successions here and there, leading to great consequences, leading to lives which are uncertain, lives which are unstable, because they didn't follow God's word. But before we start looking at our passage today, to help us really get our bearings for us as we dive back into Kings, if we were to sum up the whole message of the book, it would be this. If we, as God's people are to experience God's blessing, we need to follow a king who will perfectly follow God's word. We saw us unpacked for us in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 last week. If you want to know kings, get to know these verses. Get to know this sentence here. See, last week in the opening two chapters, the big thing we saw was God is putting his king on the throne. And we also saw what type of king it is we need as well. The big thing we're going to see in these chapters is what type of king Solomon is and what it looks like to live in his kingdom. And therefore, what type of king we need and what it looks like to live in this king's kingdom. With all this in mind, with this big dump of information for us on one kings, let me open in prayer. Our great God and Father, we praise the name of King Jesus the name which has been hyper-exalted to be the name above every other names. For Lord Jesus, we confess that you are our king. You are the everlasting king. You are God's chosen king. You are the faithful king. You are the warrior king. 
Help us now as you turn to these next chapters in this book to learn more about you, to learn more about your kingdom. We ask all these things for your glory, Lord Jesus, and for our joy in you. Amen. Let's look at the first 15 verses Lucy read for us as you look at the wisdom of Solomon. Brilliant, thank you. We see the start of the day. Solomon heads to uh, Gibeon. God, I think he graciously meets him there. It's a high place. High places never are good in kings. And God meets him there in a dream. I wonder if you've uh, seen the film before, Bruce Almighty. If you haven't, that's fine. Don't bother watching it, to be honest. But here's the premise of the film. It's quite interesting. There's a man named Bruce, and copy and pasted from the internet, it says, After his life takes a bad turn, he blames God for treating him poorly. So God gives him his powers and his responsibilities to see if he can do a better job. Imagine if that was you. God gave you his powers. What would you do with them? That's the sort of thing Solomon's been given here. It's a blank slate. It's a blank check. Ask what I shall give you. Now, what would you say? What's the first thing that comes to mind? No one had to know what you asked for. Just a little secret between you and God. What's that thing you'd ask for? Well, let's look at what Solomon asks for in verses 7 to 9. Let me read them again for us. And now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people too many to be numbered or counted for multitudes. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? See, as we read this section, as we read this petition, Solomon begins to grasp something. He recognizes something. He's beginning to see how all of God's promises are tied into God's king. Here is God's king on the throne. And in verse 8, Solomon's referencing what God said to Abraham. He's recognizing that God is faithful to his word. Here he sees before his eyes the beginning of Genesis thirteen sixteen being fulfilled. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if the one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Now why has the writer chosen to include this story in history? See, within this section there's a lot here we can learn about prayer. There's something here about pursuing wisdom. But I don't think that's the intention of the author here. Rather, what the author wants to see is that we need a king like Solomon. A king who, when given a blank check from God, is completely selfless and wants wisdom so that he can rule and lead his people well. A king who prays for his people and seeks to put their needs before his own desires. See, is Solomon going to be this great king? through whom all the promises of God are going to come true. He starts well, doesn't he? It's a great prayer to pray for a king. But I wonder if you notice the start of the chapter. Already here we see seeds of decline. Did you notice at the start, Solomon making a marriage alliance with Egypt. Now why does the author bother mentioning this? Well, because of what we saw in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, Solomon's promise that he'll fully keep the word of God. And already he's not trusting in God. He's trusting in himself. 
So because of that, he won't receive God's blessing. The people won't receive God's blessing. See, in the eyes of the world, this, this alliance with this world's superpower, it makes sense, especially for a new king. But already we see seeds of decline in this king. He's not quite the finished article. I mean, let, let's not miss what it says about him. Verse 3, he loves the Lord. He really loves God. It's entirely genuine. It's, it's really sincere. But like all of it, it's, it's fragile. It's fitful at times. What we shall see in the weeks to come is how this seemingly small decision at the start will later lead to catastrophic consequences. It's only a small degrees for a ship to be off course, and later on it's bound to hit the rocks. See, what we need is a king who always follows the word of God. A king who is always faithful. A king who is always selfless. A king whose wisdom isn't matched by anybody else. We need a king who is greater than Solomon. Because Solomon was simply that. He was a picture of a greater king to come. And that's exactly what Jesus says about himself. In Matthew chapter 12, he's talking to some religious leaders and he talks about the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South, the translation might say, a figure representing the ends of the earth. And this figure comes to meet Solomon. But in verse 42 of chapter 12, it says, the Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, someone greater than Solomon is here. Mic drop moment. Last scene of EastEnders. Big thing for Jesus to say here. Someone greater than Solomon is here. He's speaking of himself. He's saying he is the king that Israel needs. He's saying he is the king that the world needs. Why? Because he is the king who is at the right hand of the Father right now. Doing what? Selflessly praying for his people on their behalf. He is the one whom Paul later wrote about in Colossians and says, In this Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the truly wise king. All wisdom is to be found in him. See, Jesus Christ is the truly wise king who reigns over us all. And as I said, for some of us, for many of our friends, we don't rejoice in that. We, we perhaps rile against it a bit. I don't need a king. I don't need somebody to reign over me. And the truth is, we all have a king. I don't mean politically. I mean, I guess, spiritually. Somebody who leads our lives, guides our lives. But the question isn't, do you have a king? So you do. We all do. The question is, what is that king like? Some of us might think that power always corrupts people. Or that leaders always end up looking out for themselves and others like them. But as we'll see, Jesus isn't an oppressive tyrant. He isn't somebody who we think is incompetent. He's not like a speed camera just waiting to catch you out, perhaps. Or like a harsh head teacher you only ever hear from from when you're in trouble. No, Jesus is a wise and selfless king under whose rule all people will flourish. Jesus is the selfless king who left eternal glory and came as one of his people. Just now he knows exactly what we're going through. 
He knows exactly what it's like. In him, there is never any looking out for himself. Now let's see what it looks like to live under a wise king. As we go through the rest of our passage in chapter 3 into 4, don't worry, we're not going to read it all. Let's remember that for many of us in here, we're struggling. Be honest, all of us are probably struggling. Struggling. Now as we go through, I want us to, perhaps for some of us, regain perspective of things. Regain perspective as to what our king is like, to what his kingdom is like. So as we go through, we'll see what it looks like for, for, for uh, life in Solomon's kingdom. Then we'll see what it looks like now following Jesus. And then we'll see what it looks like in the life to come. So what does it look like to live under a wise king? Well, we see there's wisdom for the sake of others. And first off, wisdom brings justice. Grab your Bibles and let me read for us from chapter 16. Sorry, verse 16 of chapter 3 to the end of the chapter. Verse 16 reads, Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, O my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, The one says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king, and the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because my heart yearned for her son, O oh my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. It's a tragic story, isn't it? Here's two, two prostitutes who've come from living in the same place. Both of babies and during the night, one of them has perhaps been crushed, smothered. We don't really know, except that it's died. And one mother swaps her baby for the dead baby. Or at least that's the claim. What does Solomon do Well, wisdom knows human nature. He gets his swords and he gives the call to cut the living baby in two. Why? Knowing that the mother of the child who's alive will rather see her child live with somebody who isn't his mother than to see her child die. And notice the response in verse 28. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king 
because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. A wise king cares for his people and will see a just society come about. And we see here even to prostitutes, the people who are the lowest of low in society, even the outcast in this society can approach the throne of the king. What a king he is. How do we possibly see this justice today? Well, under the rule of Jesus, we see that all can come to him. And justice will always be found. What does that look like? How can the guilty possibly come before him? And how can there possibly be justice in that person live? Or because of the cross. We know that because on the cross, King Jesus died in our place, bearing the punishment for our sin. That means we can always approach his throne. And he will always do right by us. And all the justices that we ourselves face now, they will one day be made right. He may leave the wrongly imprisoned in the cell, but one day all things will be made right when he returns. And true justice in that day shall finally and truly come to pass. Wisdom brings justice. Let's look at the start of chapter 4 and verses 1 to 19. Wisdom brings order. We've got a cracker of a list here, don't we, in verse 1 to 19? But let's think about scripture. What do we know about scripture? How is this helpful for us? How is it helpful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness to help us be equipped for every good work? Why is it good for us to know today that the sons of Shisha were secretaries? Well, because we see in these verses, in this list, that Solomon had a well-structured, a well-ordered government. See, wisdom isn't simply doing morally the right thing, which it is, as we saw in the last section. Wisdom also helps set up good structures, good systems in place that people within them will flourish. Think of it like this. I wonder if you've ever seen kids playing football before. What happens? It's like bees on a hive, isn't it? All of them are swarming around. It's a pretty poor game of football. We need structure, formation, people knowing what they're doing. Only when that happens, there's a good game of football. Or think of working in a job. Imagine a place with no structure. No one really knows what they're doing. People are a bit unsure on what their roles are, their responsibilities are. Huge loads being borne by some while others cruise by. Perhaps for some of us, this just feels like tomorrow morning. Many of us know what it looks like when an unwise leader is in this area making decisions. See, what we see here is that wisdom brings order to a country. How do we see that today? Well, it's it's in the church. Think back, perhaps, to all that we looked at when we read Ephesians. People made up of different gifts to benefit the people of God so that together we may do the work of ministry. And in the new creation, a perfect society, a great diversity, a great unity, all to the glory of God. Wisdom brings order. Wisdom also brings peace and happiness. Look at verses 20 to 20. Actually, let's look at verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Does this not sound wonderful? All these people together, eating and drinking, and they were happy. If we're honest, we want to end poverty now, don't we? 
But what we see is that the only way that will ever happen is when the wise king Jesus returns, when his throne is fully established. And notice here the language again of this covenant with Abraham. People as many as the sand by the sea, so many you can't number. And look at verse 24 of this section as well. It's no small land, it's a huge land. Peace all around. God's people in God's place with God's king under God's rule and reign. We see here the great promises of God to Abraham finally beginning to come true. The people are beginning to know the great blessings of God. But what about now? Here's something radical for us as Scots Presbyterians. Being under Jesus means you can have joy now. It means having the protection of the great shepherd. Yes, when you became a Christian, things probably for all of us got really, really hard. But in that, because you know the king, the true king, King Jesus, we can know true joy. But just because there's joy doesn't mean it's easy. How we long for in the great king, the one who has defeated Satan, sin and death, one day bring us into the promise into the fullness of his new creation, where we shall forever be with the one who is the fountain of joy, the fountain of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, and be truly happy and know peace. Wisdom brings about justice, order, peace, and happiness. Let's look at 29 to 33 and see wisdom about all things for all people. The thing here is Solomon's wisdom wasn't just for himself. It was for all the people to enjoy. What time are we at? Yeah, let's read actually. From verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of minds like the sand on the seashore. So Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all the other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite. And Heman, Kalkol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon, to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts, and of birds, and of reptiles, and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Solomon's wisdom wasn't just for himself, it was for all people to enjoy. See, the wisdom shared meant people knew the right decisions to make. It also meant that they could enjoy the beauty of creation that God has made. I wonder if you know the saying that uh, an undergraduate degree, you know a lot about nothing. Whereas a PhD, you know... What's the opposite of that? You know a lot. No, undergraduate degree, you know... Nothing about a lot. Thank you, David. PhD degree, you know nothing about a lot. Solomon here seems to have PhDs in everything. Look at what his wisdom did. He didn't become some guru who lived up in a mountain alone. But his wisdom led him to enjoy nature, enjoy beauty, enjoy art. Here are 3,000 proverbs, as Sinclair said, ignite the imagination to capture our affections. He wrote 1,005 songs. Probably the best songs we've ever heard because he knows what we're like. 
He spoke of the greatest in creation down to the smallest. It was all of great interest to him. The animals that roamed the earth, he knew them, he loved them. Why? Because he recognized the signature of the master artist, the creator everywhere, and it satisfied his mind. What does that mean today? Well, it means that as we'll do in a moment, we're going to sing that great song, How Great, How great Thou Art. It means we can sing that second verse people often miss off. When through the woods and forest glades I wander, and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees. When I look down from lofty mountain grandeur, and see the brook, and feel the gentle breeze, so what then sings my soul, my saviour God to thee. It means that we value education. We value the arts, the sciences, the humanities, all of it. Not just one sphere of life and culture, but all of them. And finally, you see wisdom in verse 34 draws the nations in. Look at what this wise rule led to. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Solomon's wisdom had an impact in this one city that impacts a huge area right across the world, I guess. Life was so unique, so good under him, that the nations noticed. They came, they wanted to find out. Because here we see that the king is wise. The king is obedient to God's word. And now all the world is coming to see this great king who reigns. We see that God's wisdom, spoken through, lived out under God's king, draws in the nations. How do we see that? Well, we see it today in the church. People from all cultures, all nations, all social classes coming together because of the wisdom of this great king. And we long for the day when finally people from all nations shall gather together, the church from across the ages, the church from across the world, singing praise to the wise king as we spend the rest of eternity living in peace in his kingdom. So what do you think about living under this king who is greater than Solomon? Is it restrictive? Well, no, we see it's the only way that we can truly be free. Free from condemnation. Free to try again. Because he has brought justice for our sin. Free from performance. From comparing ourselves to one another. Free to come before the throne of this great king. Just like the two prostitutes did with Solomon. Because it is the wisdom of God in the cross that has enabled us to have this forgiveness. To have life to the full. What's life like in this king? Is it boring? Well, no. It means that I can enjoy all of life. I can look at God's creation from the greatest to the smallest and recognize the wisdom of Christ reflected in the beauty and art and nature of it. Is this kingdom closed off? Well, no, he's made an ordered community of people from all nations that care deeply for one another. He's made his church It's the wisdom of Christ that brings people of all nations together to himself as the church shares the gospel. What a king we have. What a kingdom we have in him. What wisdom reigns on the throne of heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we rejoice that you are the wise king. You are the one who is greater than Solomon. 
We thank you here for this blueprint we have of you in the life of Solomon. Help us to submit to your wisdom. Forgive us for the times when we drift from it. And so like that man who builds his, his house on the sand, said help us to trust you. Help us to worship you in all of life. Because in you we have freedom to do so. And we long for that day when we shall be before your throne with people of all nations. Help us to keep that day in mind and to invite others to that day to repent of their sin and to trust in you, the King on the throne. Amen. 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 Thank you, Craig. As the